in tonight. Miss Carrie, do you know that you lead one of the finest Baptist choirs in the state of Kentucky? You do. And uh, I, I say that as one who speaks from experience. I've, I've been out there, been there, done that, been in a lot of churches, especially over the last 10 or 12 years, and it doesn't get any better than it is right here at Bible Baptist Church. So we're thankful for good leadership, for those who sacrifice their time to come and uh, learn to sing together like that and just uh, bless the name of the Lord and in turn bless our hearts. We talked about worship this morning and we know that we do it for God and I believe this choir and our musicians do what they do for the Lord but as they do it unto the Lord, there are also blessings to us, right? Amen. So it just is a beautiful thing. Well, tonight I do want to uh, tell you a little bit of, of my story, and it's not a crazy story, and it's really not that long. It'll take me longer to bring you to a place where I think you need to be to appreciate it and understand what has been going on in the country of Israel since October the 7th. I've been weighing when would be the best time for me to share this material with you. And I was lying on the bed last night after watching the Cats win a game. That's always a good Saturday night in the fall, right? And I was catching up on the news and I saw a headline. And I won't call his name. I'm not going to call the names of political figures with whom I disagree from the pulpit. But I saw a political figure on TV making one of the most ludicrous statements that I've heard made since all of this started. And I just thought to myself, I want to correct that. (laughs) Well, I can't get on CNN or Fox News or CNBC. CNBC wouldn't touch me with a 150-foot pole. But... uh, You know, I I don't have that opportunity, but I can at least speak to folks that I love and just don't want you to be misinformed, and I trust that you're not, but we're going to make sure of that tonight. And to get us started, I want you to open up your Bible with me to the book of Genesis. Now, that takes us way back, doesn't it? That's the first book of the Bible, the first Book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that we know were written actually by Moses. Moses, under inspiration of God, writes so many things that we need to hear and we need to know. And he shows us the origin, not only of the world in the book of Genesis, but he actually reveals to us the origin of this nation that is so much in the spotlight of the news. And I suspect that you're like I am. This nation, Israel, stays very close in your heart, and you think about them very, very often. We hardly come out to a Bible-believing evangelical church like uh, like Bible Baptist Church and not hear a mention 
of the country of Israel. So it is something that's near and dear to each and every one of us. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, we find the call of Abram. He's Abram, not Abraham yet. And before we get there, what I want you to understand is in Genesis chapter 12, those early verses, you're exposed to what biblical scholars and Bible students consider the Abrahamic covenant. Now, just a little word about covenants. There are many different covenants sprinkled throughout the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament. But I would say to you tonight that there are five particular covenants that are absolutely crucial if you want to understand the fuller story of Scripture and how God had and has and continues to actuate a plan for the redemption of humanity. First of all, the Noahic covenant. When I started to put this together, I thought I'd walk you through each of these covenants and the Scripture, but then that would just take us way too long tonight. You're getting to know me, and I don't really lack for something to say when I'm prepared to come and and share with you, so I had to cut that out. But very, very quickly, I would remind you that the Noahic covenant, you know, God gives it when Noah and his family and the animals two by two landed on Mount Ararat and they come out of the ark. It's a beautiful covenant because even to this day, in that eternal covenant that God gave to Noah and ultimately to all of humanity, all of humankind, we see a sign of the covenant, don't we? In the rainbow. Man, I'd like to preach about the rainbow, but I'm going to resist that. Uh, We're thankful when we see that beautiful prism, the rainbow, as it's uh, reflected in a damp air when the sun hits it the right way. God caused it to be that way to remind us that His covenant is one that promises that He'll never do what, church? He'll never flood the earth again. And so that is the Noahic covenant. We'll come back to the Abrahamic covenant. You know about the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant that God established not only with Moses, but with the people of Israel when Moses came down from Mount Sinai the second time with those two tablets that held upon them the Ten Commandments that we see over here on the wall of this auditorium. And God gave a covenant, a conditional covenant with His people, that if they would walk in obedience to that covenant, they would have blessings, but if they walked in disobedience regarding the covenant, that they would not have blessings. In fact, they would heap upon themselves cursing, and they would be vulnerable to lose their land and to fall to other nations and to go into exile. All of that was part of the Mosaic Covenant. You know the Davidic Covenant 
God promised David that upon the throne of Jerusalem, one of his descendants would always be there through eternity. And we know that that covenant uh, was both a dynasty covenant and a messianic covenant because David did have a long dynasty of kings that would follow after him and his bloodline. And then ultimately the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant was the coming of Jesus Christ who traced his lineage all the way back to David. And so it is eternally fulfilled, that covenant is, through the Lord Jesus. Now all of us in the room tonight are very thankful for what I would call the new covenant. Amen? The new covenant. Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant. When we take, as a New Testament church, the Lord's Supper, that's a commemoration of the new covenant that we have through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died once for all. And because of that covenant, we have God's grace, His mercy, and we have free access to the throne of grace through our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. It's good to be a part of the family of God. So the new covenant. But I want to take you back to the one that we just kind of glossed over because it's where we'll spend our time tonight. The unconditional covenant that the Lord established with Abram, who would later become Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. There are no conditions. I want you to make a mental note of that, or if you're a person that makes notes in church services, that's important. This is an eternal, unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant would be like the Mosaic covenant, where God says, if you do this, you get blessed. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed and you could lose your land. So there are conditions in that covenant. An unconditional covenant is where God just makes an absolutely unmitigated promise, an unconditional covenant that is there for whomever He makes that covenant with, as we say in our wedding vows, to have and to hold from that day forward because it bears with it no conditions. And so it's an unconditional, eternal covenant that God made with Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me encourage you to keep your Bible out for a few moments at least as we look at a couple of other passages where this unconditional Abrahamic covenant is reiterated and emphasized. So Genesis chapter 12, beginning verse 1, we'll read through verse 3. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in the calling of Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, we find the Abrahamic covenant. Remember this about Abram. Abram uh, grew up in, in a pagan part of the world. God had not revealed himself really to anybody the way he did to Abram. Uh, his family were pagans, and God revealed himself to Abram and just said, I want you to arise from here in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern-day Iraq. I want you to get up. I want you to start a journey to a land. It's very significant there that God says, I will show you a land. We'll talk much more about that in a moment. But just get up, Abram, and go. And can you imagine the kind of faith that Father Abraham, as we call him, had just to get up to leave everything behind and go on a journey to this land, this nebulous land that the Lord promised He would show him. And so that's the first iteration, the first statement of the Abrahamic covenant. Now if you would flip over a few pages to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, I want to read to you verses 4 and 5 and then we'll skip down and pick up in verses 18 through 21. Now, before I begin reading here, let me just remind you that God had promised Abram and his wife Sarai that they would have a child. And they had waited on the promise and the child had never come. And frankly, Abram was beginning to wonder if he could really trust this God. So it comes at a strategic moment when Abram is saying to God, look, you promised me an heir, and right now all I have is this servant who comes from a foreign land, and if things continue this way, God, without my having an heir, all of my possessions and my blessing are going to be left behind, not to an heir of mine, and you promised me this heir, but to a servant actually. And God speaks to him. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. That servant from Damascus will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven. And count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. I love how God uses the stars and the heavens to communicate his promise to Abram. He says, get outside, look up at the stars. Do you ever like to go out on a clear night and stargaze? It's a beautiful thing on a starry night when there aren't a lot of lights that impede your vision between here and the heavens, and you look up and see how those stars go on and on and on and on. That's what God told Abram to do. 
Abram, I'm promising you a child. You're going to wait on me. But that child's going to come. A lineage will come from that child whom we know to be Isaac. And ultimately, just like you can't count all the stars up in the sky, your descendants are also going to be innumerable. So that's what God tells Abram. And so we make up the little kitty song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So, yeah, you all know that. So Father Abraham had many sons. God promised that he would. Uh, There is a contemporary Christian artist by the name of Aaron Schust. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Aaron Schust. He has a song that you ought to look up entitled Zion. Aaron Schust is actually a Jew. He has a lot of Jewish blood. And so he he sings a lot of songs, writes a lot of songs uh, that sort of traces his lineage. But he has this song. It's one of the most beautiful songs you'll ever listen to. It's called Zion. If you use Spotify or whatever you use, find Aaron Schust, Zion, and it's even a better song than Father Abraham. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. But Aaron Schust, Zion, look it up and you can thank me for that later. Uh, it talks about counting the stars if you can. And that's what God told Abram as he reiterates this covenant. Your descendants will be just like those stars. Now, between verse 5 and verse 18, the Lord cuts a covenant with Abram. So he'd already given him the covenant up in Ur of the Chaldees. He had trekked in his journey, and now God gets even more official about it, and he cuts a covenant. Have you ever heard that language, cutting a covenant? It's important language. It comes from the practice there in the ancient Near East, and people, when they would make a covenant, it, it required sacrifices And so they would split right down the middle. It's a little gory to think about, but they'd split the sacrifices completely down the middle, sacrificial animals. They'd lay a half on one side, a half on the other side. And usually, this is important to hear, usually the senior would make the junior. In other words, the outranking person would make the lower person with whom he was establishing a covenant walk through the middle of that sacrifice. And that was called cutting a covenant. Now here's what's interesting. Here in the book of Genesis, God cuts this covenant with Abram. Now who's the senior? God. And who's the junior? Abram. No doubt about it. But it's so beautiful when you really understand what happens here in Genesis chapter 15. God walks with Abram through the blood, through the covenant, through that cut sacrifice. And it was several carcasses of animals that were split down the middle. And God and Abram walked down through there together. And God is reiterating 
the covenant that he made with Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And in verse 18, Scripture says, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Now, did God promise a land in Genesis 12? Nod your head like this. Yes, God promised a land in Genesis chapter 12. Here, in Genesis 15, God is about to define that land. So to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, which is what? The Nile. So from the Nile River of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites along with the Parasites. It doesn't say that. I, I made that up. Just had to get your attention tonight. So God defines it. God shows him the boundaries of the land that God gave Abram. Don't miss this. This is not a land that Abram assumed. This is a land that God gave. And this is way before the conquest. And what I mean by the conquest would be that time, we'll talk about it a little more in a moment, where the Israelites were released from Egyptian captivity and they are brought back to the land. They had to fight to get it back. They had to win it back from the Canaanite city-states that were there at the time. But all the way back here in Genesis chapter 15, it's already defined. It's defined not by man, but it's defined by God. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's about to burst, and so I don't want to pop in front of you, so I'm going to give it to you. Way ahead of myself, but how dare man to make and to exact terms on a land that God has given Israel. God gave it, And God defined it. All right. A couple more chapters. I want you to see one more thing about the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, if you mark or underline in your Bible, this is a verse worth underlining. I want you to see it. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, verse 7. Scripture says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Who's the me there? God. You is Abram. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generation. Stop there for a moment. God says, Abraham, as we would later know him to be, Abraham, this is not just our deal. This is not just between you and me, but what does God say about the generations? 
This is a covenant that extends to the generations after you. Now watch these next few words. For an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Two things, two important things about the Abrahamic covenant that I want you to see. You can't miss this. First of all, it's an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. It's a covenant that God establishes, God writes the terms on it, God says what He, God, is giving and what He, God, is doing has no conditions, unconditional. And then the other thing I want you to see here is it is an eternal covenant. He says, this is a covenant that doesn't just last between you and me, but it is for your generations after you. And he uses that term everlasting or eternal. It's important for you to see these things. And so, my friends, when you watch television and you begin to hear politicians talk about trading this little portion of land for some peace. Well, that's outside of God's terms. And there won't be peace. May I ask you tonight, can you do anything outside of God's terms and assume that you're going to have peace? It doesn't work that way. It never has, and it never, ever will. It just doesn't. So this is between God and Abram, and not only Abram, but the generations that would come after him. It's his unconditional, eternal, or everlasting, which term is up to you that you prefer to use, covenant. Now, let's reiterate the eight components of God's promise to Abram. And these are promises. Here are eight of them that are just lifted right out of this covenant. By the way, any of you that want my notes, I'll be glad to copy these and have them here available for you if it would be of any help to you. Not assuming you'd want them, but I would make those available to you. So look at these promises, eight of them, right at the beginning. I don't think you can miss that. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm sending you to a land. A land. So He promises land. He promises children. That there would be generations to come after Abram. In fact, He tells them not only will there be children to come, the promised child Isaac. I wish we had time to get into all that story, but we don't. But He says... There's going to be a great nation. Count the stars again if you can. There'll be a great nation to come from you. There are promises of blessings. I'm going to bless you, Abram. Number four, I'm going to make your name great. Number five, you're going to bless others. And not only would he bless other people, but the generations that would come after him and Isaac and Jacob would be a blessing to others. And then number six, God says, 
I'm going to be a blessing to those who bless you. So the nations, the people that are benevolent toward you, that are blessings to you, I'm going to bless them. I need to stop here briefly at this point tonight and say what you probably thought I would say, but it's so important. I believe one of the reasons that this nation, our nation, the United States of America, has been blessed the way we've been blessed is because we've been a blessing to Israel. It's biblical. God says it. I will bless those who bless you, but watch the next one. God says, I will curse those who curse you. In the last few days, since Israel has did what they said they would do, and they said, we are going into Gaza and we're going to take Hamas out of the Gaza Strip. I guess people didn't believe that they would do it, but I promise you, I just got off the phone earlier today with a friend in Israel, and it's being done. And they're going to do it, and they ought to do it. Hamas is a curse to Israel, and any nation that backs up Hamas is being a curse to Israel, Israel, and God's going to curse that nation. And if we have politicians that win the day in America, some of them, and call Israel off of Hamas to allow that terrible organization, a terror organization, to continue to wreak havoc upon God's people, I'm just saying to you, that person's going to find cursings in his life. Because that's what God says. And then number eight, he tells Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And that's a messianic prophecy right there. Because who is the blessing to all nations? The Lord Jesus. And so eight components of God's covenantal promises to Abraham. You need to remember these. These are lifted straight out of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. But I want to go back to the land. Because that's what really so much of this is about, is the land. And if you'll look at this map with with me, I want you to see what God actually had promised Israel. So if you go back to Genesis 15, where Scripture talks about the boundaries of the land, you'll see it right here in this map on this screen. Now, Israel, modern Israel, and I'll show you this in just a moment, occupies just a sliver of what God gave, him, gave them in His unconditional, eternal covenant. But you can imagine what would happen if Israel tried to assume all of this. You really are talking about World War III, because here you're looking at a portion of Egypt, all of Israel, pretty much all of Jordan, 
to the north there, you see a significant part of Lebanon reaching into a little tip of Turkey, and then also uh, Syria over all the way to Iraq and coming down to Jordan to the western side of the map there, that western boundary where the green ends, that's the great river of Egypt, that's the Nile River. And if you look up to the northeast side of the map, the corner of the map up there, that's the river Euphrates. And that's what God said to the Israelites in His unconditional, eternal promise and covenant with them. He said, this will be your land. Now if you look at the next map, you'll see outlined in red where modern-day Israel is. I just want you to, to take that in for a moment. Now, according to Scripture, does Israel have every right to be within that red boundary? Absolutely, but according to Scripture and according to the covenant God made with them, look at what more could be theirs. And so this little tiny strip, by the way, it's about the size of New Jersey. Did you know that? The modern country of Israel in land mass is about the size of the United States state of New Jersey. That's what we're talking about. About nine and a half million people live within that. That little area about the size of of New Jersey. And then the politicians of the world continue to paw at them and to poke at them and say, well, you need to give up this. You need to quit occupying this. You need to do that. You need to do this. When God has said all of that is their land. I'm going to say something that I hope nobody takes me the wrong way, but I'm going to say it. Israel has more right to be where they are right now than you and I have to be here in North America. It's just true. Now here's what I believe. I, you know, I believe God is sovereign and He allows things to happen and He designs things to happen. I certainly believe that it's God's will for us to be where we are. It seems that God gave that to us and that God has blessed us. I wonder uh, how much longer could that possibly be with the way we currently live our lives and turn our backs on God and so many of our people. Idiots in colleges and universities that know nothing of what they speak. I'd like to gather them up and, and, and take them right in. No, I wouldn't. That wouldn't be right. Forgive me, Lord. They need to go see what they don't know. That's the land. Said Abram, Get up from Ur of the Chaldees, 
Go to a land that I will show you. Well, beloved, right there it is. That's the land that God in His covenant gave to Abraham and Abraham's generations. What I want to do next is take you on a sachet. I can't comment on much of this, but I want to give you just a little bit of a timeline to help you understand actually one thing. We're going to go through three slides to make basically one point. And when I put these dates together, they're approximate. And I just put together a quick list that helps you. Uh, Every one of these areas, you could dig into it and you could find ways to break it down more than I have. But this is just to help you get your mind around it. You're looking at about 2,000 years, 1,900 years B.C. So we're starting before the Common Era, before Anno Domini, the life of Christ. So 1900, some would say even 2000 B.C., that is approximately the date of Abraham. Between 18 and 1400 B.C., that's the Egyptian captivity. And the Canaanites would form those city-states there in the land that God had already given His people. 1400, that's the time of the Moses and Joshua uh, conquest where they would lead the people of God out of Egypt back to the promised land. In about 1010 B.C., that's the confederation of all 12 tribes under their first king Saul, then David, then Solomon. 930 is the divided kingdom. We talked a little bit about that this morning. 722 B.C., Samaria falls to the Assyrians. 587 is when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. 5.30 would be when the Jews return and reestablish Jerusalem, getting a little more closer in days that we um, are more familiar with. 3.33, at about that time, B.C., that's when the Greeks under Alexander the Great would take over the area. The Egyptians flexed their muscles. In 3.23, is the Hasmonean dynasty. That's where... Jewish people ruled and reigned in Jerusalem again until 70 A.D. or B.C. rather when the Romans took over. That would go all the way to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. From 70 to the early 300s would be the late Roman period. 324 A.D., our time frame, is the Byzantinian rule. That's, you know, when the Roman Empire divided and you had the eastern empire and the western empire eastern empire is what we call the byzantines that would have been uh, early in that time period would have been the time of constantine you've probably heard about the edict of milan under constantine and that's when he pronounced that christianity was legal in the roman empire not only was it legal but it became the state religion so that's the time frame that you have there Later, if you look at the next slide in 636, that's where a group of Muslims took control of the area. The Crusaders, the European quote-unquote, notice I'm using my quotation marks, Christian Crusaders came, took over the area, 1267. The Mamluks, 1516. The Ottomans, 
who would be in control for a long time. 1917, World War I. After World War I, you have the British Mandate. And that's where in the Levant, in that area, uh, the, the English Empire controls part of it. They never annexed it, but they controlled it and tried to reestablish peace there. And the French would do the same in other parts of that world. And then ultimately in 1948, you have the birth of modern Israel. So Israel as a nation in that land, back in that land that the Lord had promised Abraham, once again an Israel flag is hoisted over Jerusalem and from 1948 up until today you have modern Israel. Now, if you look at the next screen, I want to share with you just some key, quick, important facts. So Israel's been a nation since 1948 as far as a recognized world nation. From that recognition in 1948, that little sliver that we call the Gaza Strip, that was part of Israel. So after the British mandate, Israel actually relinquished its control in Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip from 49 to 1967. And then there was what we refer to as the Six-Day War, a literal six-day war that Israel won miraculously. Israel took the Gaza Strip again and controlled it from 1967 to 1994. So from 67 to 94... Actually, Israel was in control of the Gaza Strip. How many of you remember the Oslo Accords in 1994? I said I wasn't going to call a name, but I'm going to call one tonight. You can look at the picture. It's kind of emblazoned in my memory, and when I remind you of it, you'll probably remember it too. South Lawn of the White House, you have... Arafat on one side and Yitzhak Rabin on the other side and a Bill Clinton in the middle grinning like a Cheshire cat thinking that he had done something. Well, here's what he did. It wasn't just him, but others along with him from both sides of the aisle, by the way, I would say. In 1994, the Oslo Accords... Israel agreed to phase out control of the Gaza Strip to the the newly established Palestinian Authority. PLO and Palestinian Authority are two different things. You need to know that. PLO was and probably always will be a terror organization and the Palestinian Authority puts up with terror organizations. That's just the bottom line. So from 94 up to what you've seen recently, the Gaza Strip was handed over to the Palestinians and in the Palestinian general election of 2006, 
Hamas, acting as a political party, took over the regional leadership of the Gaza Strip. Backed by Iran. And they always have been. And so has Hezbollah to the north. So when you hear stories of Hamas in the south and Hezbollah in the north, you're hearing stories of terror organization that are ran off of Iranian dollars. And we just released several million back to them days before this happened. So I hope that helps you come up to speed with with where we are in, in this big sweeping history of the world. But here's what I want you to see. Do you remember as I was going down that timeline, we talked about a lot of people. We talked about the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Mamluks. We talked about a lot of people. But you know who we never talked about having any kind of control of that area? We never talked about this group called the Palestinians. Because they never have. And here's what I want you to understand. Now listen, before I say this, I know, I personally know Palestinians. And there are some good Palestinians. I want you to know that. They're good people, they're lovely people, and they don't want to see happen what's happening today. So I am not painting with a wide brush. Well, I guess maybe I am, but within that wide brush there are some fine strokes and some fine folks. So I want you to hear me say that. Innocent people ought not to be killed. And so that, that, that is not my point. Don't, don't misunderstand me for one moment. But I want you to understand where the word Palestine and the word Palestinian comes from. You remember when we were going down the list there in the history of the area, we talked about the Romans being in control. You ought to know that well because that's the New Testament time. The Romans called that whole Levant region, not just Israel, but much of the areas in the Levant, they called it Palestina. Palestina. And I could talk much more about it But listen, the Roman word, it's actually a Greek word that the Romans use, Palestina, is based on the term Philistine. Did you know that? You can hear it. Can't you hear the the, the transliteration? It's not a translation. It's a transliteration. Palestine, Philistine. That's where it comes from. So that whole coastal area in the Old Testament time were control, was controlled by the Philistines. You know that. You know all those battles between Israel and the Philistines. Do you know who the Philistines were? They were Greeks. They were not Arab. They came off of Crete and other Aegean islands 
and came to that main coastal area that now is the western border of Israel, and they controlled those cities like Gaza and Ekron and Ashkelon and Ashdod. That was the land of the Philistines. So when you hear the word Palestine, or you hear the word Palestinian, it doesn't have anything to do with Arab Muslims. It comes from the term Philistine, which, by the way, never, ever, ever talk about a Jewish person as coming from Palestine. If he or she hears you, you might get smacked. I really wouldn't blame them. Well, you wouldn't have known. You would have done it in ignorance. But don't do that. That area is not Palestine. And it is not Philistine. The Philistines have been wiped from the face of the map many, many, many centuries ago. So, I took you through all of that to simply say this. There is no such thing as a land called Palestine. There's no such thing. Biblically or historically, there's no such thing as a land called Palestine. And frankly, there's no such thing as a Palestinian because Palestinians anglicized are the Philistines from centuries ago, and they're not there anymore. The Palestinians primarily are Arab Muslims. That's who they are. And they have created for themselves, literally out of thin air, the rights to a land and an assumed identity. Hear me say it again. There are beautiful, wonderful, I would go so far as to say godly Palestinians. I can show you pictures of some. I have the numbers of some right here on my phone. They are good people. And they do not like where they are today and being caught up in this. But as far as the political organization of it and the rhetoric that you hear, there's just frankly no such thing as Palestine or Palestinians. We're going to go offline at that. We're over time. I'm going to show you a very quick few things about my experience. If anybody needs to go, I certainly understand that. I won't keep you another 10 minutes if you can bear with me. So... When I made this last trip 